There's no in-between. So you make a list. Go with what comes. I believe with any of these lists, resentment, fear, sex, if it comes, it's a gift. Trust it. Work on the list of, until, until you know you're done. Through your life, major relationships. Even Mark, Mark, I, I hope I tell it right, but one time in having finished amends, we were given an exercise by this Native American man where you then start to let your consciousness clear and you start to ask, show me any amends I'm not aware of. Fifty-two names came out of his consciousness, but not names. They were specific instances with women that he wrote about and wrote letters, read the letters, got free. That whole area of his life changed to this day from that piece of work. So you can sit there and be working on this list for your sex inventory, and events will come. The girl on the beach in Vietnam, blah, 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 blah. Right? And specific names, names you haven't thought of. For That's when I know that the prayer is working. When a name comes to me that I didn't, you know. Great way to miss the miracles in your life. Because, see, I believe there are miracles, there are coincidences, and there are accomplishments. And all you have to do throughout your sobriety is continue to take the credit for your next breath, for the inventory list, for the great amends you've made. All you have to do is continue to take the credit for your sobriety to miss the miracles of the next breath, of the next day, of the next name. So all you have to do in this room, if you want to continue to miss the miracles of God working in your life, is to continue to take the credit. And any alcoholic anywhere that ever says a coincidence is where God wishes to remain anonymous, they're lying. Because an alcoholic says that the coincidence is not when he wants God to remain anonymous, it's when he wants to take the credit. Because my God does not want to remain anonymous. He wants to show himself through me to you and me on a regular basis. That's what the third step decision is all about. That's what the prayer is all about. Now so you work on this list. And then, by the way, those of you who don't want to work on this list, you can follow the instructions on page 96. <laughs> Do not be discouraged if your prospect does not respond at once. Search out another man or woman. Try again. You are sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you offered. You find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man or woman who cannot or will not work with you. If you leave such a person alone, they may soon become convinced they cannot recover by themselves. To spend too much time in any one situation is to deny some other person an opportunity to live and be happy. One of our fellowship failed entirely with his first half dozen prospects. He often says if he had continued to work on them, he would have deprived many others of their chance. Take the first name off the list, put it at the top of a paper. This inventory is not columns. This inventory is paragraphs. Take the first name off the list, put it on a piece of paper, write a brief history of the relationship. In this history, we should maybe look at motives for getting involved in the first place, specific sex conduct, major points that came up during that relationship, and how did it end or where is it now. After you've written that brief history, Maybe that maybe that's the front of a page, or maybe the back, and then on another page, answer the nine questions in paragraph form with explanations. Here's the nine questions. Where have I been selfish? I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this, I didn't do this, I wasn't there for this. 
where was I dishonest? I lied about this. I lied about this. I didn't tell her about this. I believed this. Where was I inconsiderate? Who did I hurt? Now, that's a very important question. Look around the relationship. Other people might have been hurt. His ex, his kids, his parents, blah, blah, blah. Number five, did I arouse jealousy? Or when I did this, when I did this, when I did this? Did I arouse suspicion? When I did this, when I did this? How about bitterness? Number eight, where was I at fault? And number nine, which should be marked or highlighted so you can easily refer back to it. We're going to use it for something. Question number nine is what should I have done instead? So I'll read one quickly. This guy wrote a prayer at the top of the page. He says here, keep in mind this is a brief example. Some may have longer explanations, especially the women. <clears throat> Just kidding. He put his wife at the top of the page, and she says, you better read this. I can't. Uh... I met my wife at a party. My motive for getting involved was out of need. I believe I would have done anything for her to be with me. My drinking frequently took me to bars and... with me. My drinking frequently took me to bars and to questionable sex conduct that involved other women. There were many situations, but I believe extreme drunkenness kept me from cheating on my wife most of the time. And this is one of your... Oh, this was one of yours, wasn't it, we put in here? Oh, I'm when I was dry and with my wife, the guilt I felt over this made me so uncomfortable I couldn't make love to her. That never happened to me. <laughs> Some major points that came up... <laughs> That my drinking became more serious. It got harder and harder to go to work and do my job. As my wife got more concerned about my drinking, I got more belligerent over her pleadings, and we argued continuously. She got so upset over this, she even cried to Mr. Brown at my job. I regularly came home late drunk and went right to sleep so I wouldn't have to talk to her. The relationship ended after a major argument following my accusation of her having an affair with Brown. I know she only went to him to talk about me. I told her I would stop drinking, but she wouldn't. she couldn't believe me. One, I'd been selfish, believing my drinking wasn't hurting anyone. Two, I was dishonest, lying to her over and over again about where I'd been all night. Three, I was inconsiderate, blaming her for my problems. Four, I hurt all the people who cared for me the most, my wife, her father, my boss. Five, I caused jealousy the way I looked at other women. Six, I caused suspicion, staying out late or not coming home some nights. Seven, I caused my wife bitterness, dragging her through the insanity I created. Eight, my fault was I could not accept her attempts to reason with me about the way I drank and lived, the way I was living screamed, get away from me. Nine, if only I could have been less selfish, I could have listened more to what my wife was saying. After all, she was right all along. I never doubted she loved me. I should have trusted that what she was saying was important enough to at least consider. I did say in the beginning I would have done anything to make her happy and stay with me, but I couldn't do anything but drink at the time. We got this all down on paper. And we looked at it. Why? Well, because in this way, we're trying to shape a sane and sound ideal for our future sex life. Take a dictionary. Look up those three words. Know what sane, sound, and ideal means. We subjected each relation to this test. Was it selfish or not? You're going to ask God to mold your ideals and help you to live up to them. Remember, always, sex power is God-given. Therefore, good, neither to be used lightly or selfishly, nor to be despised or loathed. 
Now we're going to talk about the most overlooked part of the inventory, even among people that do what's in this book. And that is, after your sex inventory is done, to begin to pray about an ideal, ask God to help mold it, and choose. It's going to say here in a page or so, this is a chosen ideal. And write it out using question number nine from the sex inventory of what you should have done in the past as a guide to what you'd like to do in the future. In the future, I would like to be... So using question number nine in your sex inventory as a guide, what should you have done instead? Ask God to mold your ideal and write it out in paragraph form. Start out with, in the future, I would like to be... And this is not writing out the ideal woman or what the ideal man would be like. That's just creating your next mate in your own image, right? It's like masturbation. At least it's with somebody that I really, really love. Right? I did that once. I got fooled into I don't know who told me. I don't know where I got the idea. But I was going to make my ideal, and I was going to write about the perfect woman that I wanted to be with. And she was brought into my life. The whole thing was a lie. The whole thing was a fantasy. She was nothing that I fell in love with. And six months later, she got free and did the work and was nothing that I fell in love with. I fell in love with an alcoholic. Well, she was still a woman when we were done. I fell in love with an alcoholic, loved God, loved the work, loved AA, loved working with others. Nine months later, from this ideal that I wrote, and I'm not saying I created her or any of this. I'm just saying what we bring to our life is sometimes amazing. <clears throat> Nine months later, she's not alcoholic. She doesn't like to work. She doesn't like to work with others. She's not crazy about God. And she's doing the opposite of anything that I have to do with in this program. And she's healthy. <laughs> she's free. Yeah. Her getting free broke my vision of a false ideal that I created. So I want to bring what I want to find and I want God to show me and help mold what I would like to bring to my future. Big difference, and there's people that know a lot more about it than I do. There's a big difference between what Westerners do with visualization and what a lot of other spiritual people do with vision. Westerners take, and I love this new one, it's, it's a word that just a word, I don't even want to ask anybody what it is, but I know that these men, these men in Los Angeles meet and they do something with my mission statements, right? I don't even want to know what that is. But I do know that what Westerners do, myself included, with visualization is that you see the house, you create the house, and you make the house happen, right? I know there's another way where you can ask God to show you the vision and bring you to it. And it's not a self-help vision, right? Whatever our ideal turns out to be, we must be willing to grow toward it. We must be willing to make amends where we've done harm, provided we do not bring about still more harm in so doing. Our next two sentences really give you a very powerful instruction. It says, in other words, we're going to treat sex as we would any other problem in meditation. In meditation, we're going to ask God what we should do about each specific matter, the right answer will come if we want it. 
that's I think that's an important line for every problem just like they're saying here we treat sex as we would any other problem and the last line I think I think is, is this whole path it's a guiding principle that the right answers will come if you want it those of us that, that do the work sometimes really discard a desire to stop drinking I even did it myself yesterday, probably when we were talking. They really, they really preclude this part of a desire to stop drinking and being given the power to stay sober. This magical combination between what's in your heart and what is your will and what God will give you. I don't think God gives you anything that's not in your heart. I think four through nine is about getting in touch with what's in your heart, getting the power to carry it out, and bringing what's in your heart out to the world. But have you ever seen anybody be gotten sober and kept sober who there wasn't a spark of desire or will to connect to that? There's a fine line between will and spirit. The right answers come if you want it. Both are necessary. Let me, let me share something real quick around the word want. Uh, my spiritual guide, he's a Benedictine uh, monk and priest. He's been that way for about 20-some years. Made a statement to me. I never quite heard of this, and it had to do with God. He said, Mark, my experience is God loves me so very much that if I do not let God know that I want him in my life and take action to let him know that, he won't come. That's how much he loves me. Do you realize how powerful that love is, Mark? So he said, if you want God in your life, Mark, you ask him, you tell him you want him in your life and begin to take a series of actions to confirm that you want him in your life. And I just never heard it put like that. And I thought to myself, you know what? That is the God that I love. And he does love me so much. And if I don't want him, if I don't want him, he loves me so much he won't come. He will without, without power. I can have all the will in the world, but if I suffer from lack of power, my will can't move me without spirit. I think it's also vice versa. Spirit doesn't move without some kind of will, without asking. The first spiritual principle Don ever taught us was that God is not rude. He does not come where he's not invited. Look, use the word over and over, over again, willpower. You get to make a choice. Self-will and the power of that, or the will of God and the power of that. There's nothing in between. And your actions on a daily basis confirm where you're moving. Joe's mentioned already, you're either moving toward alcohol, you're moving toward God. Real interesting book called Will and Spirit by um, Gerald May. God alone can judge your sex situation. Counsel with other persons is often desirable, but let God be the final judge. We realize that some sponsors are, oh, I'm sorry. We realize that some sponsors are fanatical about sex as other sponsors are loose. Avoid hysterical thinking or advice. None of my babies are going to have sex for the first year because I haven't had sex for so long nobody else is. <laughs> or what would the other guy say? All my babies are going to have sex right? with me, right? <laughs> my sponsor never called me a baby. I ain't his baby, right? Suppose I'm my mother's baby, yeah. right? 
He didn't create me. He didn't bring me into the world, right? I'm not his baby. I'm not a pigeon, right? Don knew I didn't need to be disgraced anymore. He never introduced me to anybody around this whole country or referred to anybody he's ever sponsored as a baby or a pigeon. We're friends. You, you know what the big book, the word it uses in working with others? You know what the word is? Protege. Look up the word protege. You know what it means? Someone very special. That's the word the big book uses. Proteges. Hmm. Suppose you fall short of this chosen ideal and stumble. Does that mean you're going to get drunk? Some people tell us so. But this is only a half-truth. It depends on you and your motives. If you are sorry for what you have done and have the honest desire to let God take you to better things, this is the big one for some of us. You mean, you mean with this area of my life, God could take me to better things? You ever pray with your mate before you have sex? Bring God to that? The most spirit, one of the most spiritual experiences that two people can share? Bring God to that. Get free of that false shame. If you're not sorry, for what you have done. I'm sorry. If you are not sorry and you continue, continue. I'm sorry. If you are not sorry and are continue. Conduct. I just can't quit apologizing. If you're not sorry and your conduct continues to harm others, you're quite sure to drink. Well, now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What, what, that couldn't possibly mean. That doesn't. That, no, it couldn't mean that. Couldn't mean that. We are not theorizing. These are facts out of our experience. To sum up about sex, pray for the right ideal, for guidance in each questionable situation, for sanity and the strength to do the right thing. That's all I need. I know what the right thing is. I just need the strength to do the right thing. If sex becomes very troublesome, throw yourself the harder into helping others. I have a perverted mind. That line has never sounded quite right to me. But think of their needs and work for them. This takes us out of ourselves. It will quiet the imperious urge. Now, that must be, I don't know the definition, but I would bet that imperious is a very interesting word. When to yield means heartache. Stop. Our three inventories are done. Let's take a break until... <laughs> there you go. Just like that, man. He let me out of the way here. <coughs> okay. <clears throat> Joe Alcoholic. A friend of mine had a triple bypass not too long ago. His name's Jaime. And I was in his hotel room. I'm sorry. I was in his hospital room. And uh, this isn't a very good drawing, but uh, I was watching this heart monitor. Beep. Beep. Right? And I, I have a strange mind, and I realized that... Um, I saw a picture of this experience I've been having this time. 
And the experience I've been having this time is that each step brought me to a deeper realization of the first step. And I don't know how that happened. But I know in the past there were times where the further away I got from step one, the further away I got from step one. Now, what do I mean by that? The further away I got from step one, I'd be in my amends. See, it's the reason everybody in this room has unfinished amends. It's the reason everybody in this room that's having trouble with inventory, as long as you know the mechanics of how to write inventory, is having trouble with inventory. Because the further away you get from the consciousness of your first step, the further away you get from your first step. So I started to see this experience I was having when I was watching this heart monitor. And I see two lines of will. There's this line, and we're going to look in the 10th in the step, it's going to talk about another line where you can exercise your willpower when it's aligned with God, all that you wish. It's proper use of the will. So then there must be this other line that's like improper use of the will. And that's the line of my will. This is, this is, let's say, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. You've been around for a while, and you've had a valid experience with God. And here you are. Here you are in this fit spiritual condition. You've had a valid experience with God. Now, what is it that happens... Or what does it look like if you could paint a picture when my ego rebuilds itself and I end up back in an unrecovered state closer to booze than when I was in this state? Well, I move out of this state. I move, I move out of this fit spiritual condition as the ego rebuilds itself and I move into self-will. And what does the book say? My life, along this line, run on my will doesn't work what does it lead to it leads to unmanageability it leads to agnosticism it leads to self-will it leads to selfishness dishonesty self-seeking and fear it leads to committing wrong it leads to defects shortcomings harm that's where it leads my life run on my will okay then i'm driven back I'm driven back to booze. I moved back into the first step. I had this new experience with step one. So here's my, here's my experience with step one. The truth about me and I, let's say the first half of step one. I'm back in the steps. I see the truth about me and booze. So this line, the line of God's will, takes me where I am, which is, here's booze, to God. Rather than self-will takes you from God to booze. These are interesting lines here. So here I am with the truth about booze. I'm going to drink. I am going to drink. Left to my own devices, I'm going to drink. I can't keep myself sober. And what pops up out of the first step? Unmanageability. Now, and I want to list them. List the current unmanageability as it's manifesting in each area of your life as on page 52. Listed. Personal relationships. Well, I'm having trouble with this relationship. It's a little tense over here. Write out specific things on a piece of paper where you see current unmanageability 
with personal relationships, your emotional nature, misery, depression, fear, making a living, health, money, anything that comes to you. Write them out. Then bring each of them, even if you have to do it one at a time. This tension with my girlfriend will lead to fear, pain, I'll be alone. We'll call it like a mind map, where if I stay in each of those, where will it bring me? Until each of those that you've written it out brings you right back to alcohol. And all of a sudden, the unmanageability hasn't taken you further away from your first step. It's taken you deeper into it. Because if you do not bring the unmanageability back to this line of alcohol, back to the truth about alcohol, you will be, as you move into the second step, further away from your first step than when you started. But if you bring it back to alcohol, each of the areas of your life that you see are currently unmanageable, bring it back to alcohol, you will move into the second step with a deeper first step. So then you look at the second step. And what pops up out of the second step every time? My current agnosticism. And it's going to be the same stuff that you wrote out that's the unmanageability. A direct connection. They're just going to be different names. We just put a different name on them. Where I have current agnosticism, can God really take me to a better place with this relationship, with my emotional nature, with misery and depression and making a living and money? And I'm going to see a direct line between my current agnosticism and my current unmanageability. Then bring the current agnosticism, even if you have to write it out and see how similar it is to the unmanageability. Bring the current agnosticism back to alcohol. Because if you don't, when you move into the third step, you'll be further away from the truth about alcohol the further away you get from it. But if you bring the truth about the, un the agnosticism back to booze, you're actually getting closer to God. If you don't bring the truth about the current agnosticism back to booze, you're getting closer to booze, not further away from it, because you're traveling along this line. <clears throat> then I take the third step. What pops up out of the third step? My life run on self-will doesn't work. The first requirement. Write out every area of your life where you're running your life on self-will, and it will be the same areas where you have agnosticism, and it will be the same areas where you see the unmanageability. Bring that self-will back to alcohol, and you will be deeper into the first step than when you started. If you don't bring self-will, you'll find yourself in the third step wondering why you're making the third step decision, and you'll be further away from your first step than when you started, because you're up here. You're even further away now. Bring that self-will back to booze. You will have a deeper experience in the middle of the third step than when you were in step one. And you will be closer to God based on that experience than if you don't bring it back to booze, you'll be closer to booze. It's an interesting paradox. Take the third step. <clears throat> we bring the self-will back to booze. We take the fourth step. We start to write. What pops up? Selfishness, dishonesty, self-seeking, and fear. Same as the areas where I have self-will. <laughs> same as the agnosticism and same as the unmanageability. 
you will see the similarities of how they're connected. But bring the selfishness, dishonesty, self-seeking, and fear back to alcohol, and you'll have a deeper experience with step one in the middle of a fifth step, in the middle of writing inventory, as you did when you were in step one. And by doing that, you will be closer to God by keeping the truth about booze in your consciousness, rather than losing your first step, and now you're going to be actually closer to drinking again because you're further away from your first step. And then you move into a fifth step. What comes out in the middle of a fifth step? The exact nature of wrongs that will be the same as your selfishness, dishonesty, self-seeking, and fear, the same as your self-will, the same as the the agnosticism, and the same as the unmanageability. And in the middle of the fifth step, bring those current wrongs right back to alcohol. And by bringing this magical distance in your consciousness between booze and God, here I am somewhere, wherever it is I am, you won't lose what's moving you, and you won't lose what you're headed toward. The magical distance of consciousness between the truth about booze and the truth that I'm seeking, between the dragon, I like Mark's analogy about a dragon blowing smoke up my ass, right? I mean, blowing fire up my ass, right? That's the dragon. And this is the light. This is the light. You stay on this line of consciousness where each step takes you deeper into the first step and you're headed toward a clear light. You move up from that and you move back into self-will and these things have nothing to do with alcohol and you will move further outside of the line of God deeper into self-will, moving along through the steps with no connection to your first step, and you will be moving along a line of self-will closer to your next drink than when you started. And wonder why you're done with amends and you're back up against the wall because none of the steps past the unmanageability had anything to do with what's down here, had anything to do with this line. And the further away you got from step one, the further away you got from step one, because none of the things past the unmanageability had anything to do with alcohol. And then you wonder why at the end of the work you're closer to booze than when you started. Bring each piece of each work back to alcohol, and it will bring you along this line. When aligned with God, you can exercise your willpower along all that you wish. But if you lose the dragon, we've seen people do it. They move so far into the light, they lose their first step. And they get flaky with why they're doing this. Some get lost. Best thing I ever read on this whole path by Sam Shoemaker in his book called I Stand by the Door is the poem he wrote, I Stand by the Door. And he talks about that goes, those that go too far in, they lose this place, this place by the door where the new man is and this truth about alcohol. And I wonder why I keep going through the steps and my ego rebuilds because each step has brought me further away from the truth about booze and closer to booze at the same time. 
than remaining in the truth about my first step that connects me to all of this and that brings me closer to God. Okay. If you open your big books to uh, page uh, 70, you're done with the three inventories. When uh, I'm getting ready to listen to a fifth step, we go in um, a meditation room and we uh, meditate for a while and then we turn the book to page 70 because I want to make sure we read all the instructions. We're both real clear on what we're doing there. And I always have people read this in first person. If I've been thorough about my personal inventory, I've written down a lot. I have listed and analyzed my resentments. I have begun to comprehend their futility and their fatality. Now, that's an interesting question to ask yourself. Why are my resentments futile? And do I believe they're fatal? I've commenced to see their terrible destructiveness. I've begun to learn tolerance, patience, goodwill toward all men, even my enemies, for I look at them as sick people. I have listed the people I've hurt by my conduct, and I'm willing to straighten out the past if I can. In this book, I read again and again that fate did for me what I could not do for myself. I hope I am convinced now that God can remove whatever self-will has blocked me off from God. That really dovetails into what Joe just said. If I lose sight of step one and understand that this is all about God, and I'm back into self-will and only God can remove self-will, your self-will can't eliminate your self-will. I hope I am convinced now that God can remove whatever self-will has blocked me off from Him. If I've already made a decision, step three... In an inventory of my grosser handicap, step four, I've made a good beginning. That being so, I swallowed and digested some big chunks of truth about myself. God is truth. <laughs> Chapter six, into action. Now, let me get this right. <laughs> wonder what they mean by that, into action. Having made my personal inventory, what shall I do about it? I've been trying to get a new attitude, step two, a new relationship with my creator, step three, and to discover the obstacles in my path. Book said, face and be rid of. Get excited about inventory. I've admitted certain defects. I have ascertained the rough way what the trouble is. I have put my finger on the weak items in my personal inventory. Now these are about to be cast out. Cast out. Hmm. This requires action on my part. There's that word again. Which, when completed, will mean... They describe what the action is. I have admitted to God, to myself, and to another human being the exact nature of my defects. This brings me to the fifth step in the program recovery mentioned in the preceding chapters. This is perhaps difficult, especially discussing my defects with another person. I think I've done well enough in admitting these things to myself. There's doubt about that. In actual practice, we usually find a solitary self-appraisal insufficient. The self is going to analyze the self, right? Many of us thought it necessary to go much further. Now they're going to hook you back to step one. I will be more reconciled to discussing myself with another person when I see good reasons why I should do so, the best reason first. If I skip this vital step, I may not overcome drinking. Time after time, newcomers have tried to keep to themselves certain facts about their lives, Trying to avoid this humbling experience, they have turned to easier methods. Almost invariably, they got drunk. 
book makes an interesting statement here. Having persevered with the rest of the program, worked the rest of the steps, they wondered why they fell. We think the reason is they never completed their house cleaning. They took inventory all right, but they hung on to some of the worst items in stock. They only thought that they had lost their egoism and fear. They, Joe talked about working the steps on yourself, Will. They only thought that they had humbled themselves, but they had not learned enough of humility, fearlessness, and honesty in the sense we find it necessary until they told someone else all their life story. More than most people, I lead a double life. I'm very much the actor. To the outer world, I present my stage character. Remember, we've, talked, we've seen those in inventory already, haven't we? This is the one I like my fellows to see. I want to enjoy a certain reputation, but I know in my heart that I do not deserve it. Inconsistency is made worse by the things they do in my sprees, drunk or sober. Coming to my senses, I'm revolted at certain episodes I vaguely remember. These memories are a nightmare. I tremble to think someone might have observed me. As fast as I can, I will push these memories far inside myself. I hope they'll never see the light. Huh, that's interesting. The light of day, I'm under, con and that produces constant fear and tension, doesn't it? And that makes for more drinking. Psychologists are inclined to agree with this. We spend thousands of dollars for examinations. We know but few instances where we've given these doctors a fair break. We have seldom told them the whole truth, nor have we followed their advice. So unwilling to be honest with these sympathetic men, we're honest with no one else. See the terrible position we place ourselves in? We're honest with nobody. Small wonder many in the medical profession have a low opinion of alcoholics and their chance for recovery. I must be entirely... What do you think they mean by that, Joe? Entirely? Couldn't mean entirely. I must be entirely honest with somebody if I expect to either live long or happily in this world. Boy, that's a great promise. And a warning. Rightly and naturally, I need to think well before I choose the person or persons. Highlight that. Ah. The book mentions persons. That's where Paul Martin's group in Chicago got that idea, and they started doing multiple fist steps, and they swap inventories. They read theirs. You give them some feedback. You read yours. They give you some feedback. Short period of time, several. Produces a powerful experience. Paul Martin met a man back uh, 40, 45 years ago, a psychiatrist who knew Harry Tebolt, uh, named Dr. Herbert Maurer. Herbert Maurer talked to Paul about, um, it's a very simple spiritual principle, the more people you open yourself up to, the more open you are. And they talked about uh, several confessions or fist steps in a short period of time, and um, their group has just gone wild with that. Uh, I don't want to scare anybody, and you certainly wouldn't want to do this your first time. My first fist step, it was a big deal to lay the whole deal out for one man. Some of you, that might not be a big deal, but I used to take a little to this guy, a little to this guy, a little to you if it would serve me. I never laid the whole deal out for one person in my whole life. So the first time, it was a big deal to do it with Don, one, just one man. But several years later, it was killing me because I woke up with an inventory in Santa Monica, and my ego told me, Don P. is the only man that can hear this inventory. And the next voice said, what if something happens to Don? You're screwed. And if you don't get past that belief system, you're a dead man. And I read to a few people. And the next year, I would do a few. The next year, this past year, I went through the work with a friend. We were doing it together, not me as the teacher and him as the student or him as the teacher. We just did it together from a suggestion from a guy in Denver. 
I needed to quit going to Denver all the time and doing the work with these gurus, and I needed to do the work with people where I live. My best friend and I, uh, one of my best, one of my many, one of my many best friends. <laughs> He's getting on us now. <laughs> he and I, uh, Brian, I told you about Brian. Brian has no investment in anybody liking him. He's totally free. He asks anybody anything he wants. And... Um, not totally free. He's very free. And um, I asked, uh, he asked me to take him through, and I said, no, let's do it together. We looked at one and told you about some of the reservations I had about controlling that power, which keeps me sober. And It was a pretty powerful first step, and all of a sudden I noticed in the middle of the second step, my first step was more powerful. We took the third step, and I noticed after my third step, my first step was more powerful than when I was in it. Wrote inventory. Didn't get to read to him yet. Back east, visiting my family, Buffalo, had a free weekend, called Paul. He said, come on over. Come over on Wednesday. We'll go to the home group. Stay till Sunday. I didn't know what was going to go on. I'd heard Gary Brown talk about doing it. Gary Brown did this when he was 26 years sober. Flew up to Chicago, reviewed one, two, and three. Flew back home, wrote inventory, went back to Chicago to Paul's his sponsor. Read inventory, saw some financial stuff he hadn't seen before. Went home, talked to the wife. They decided to sell the house, pay off those financial amends, moved into a teeny little trailer, and the guy was more free than the 10 years I knew him. And I flew, I, I went there, went to the home group on Wednesday night. We went to dinner. At dinner, he hands me a schedule, and it says Thursday, 9 o'clock, Charlie, 1 o'clock, Sam, 4 o'clock, Fred, Friday, 9 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 4 o'clock, Saturday, 9 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 4 o'clock. They had scheduled nine fist steps for me. And I realized I'm not going to be able to leave this room. And then this, <laughs> this hotel room and this quiet voice said, make it a three-day silent retreat, except when you're reading. And I did nine fist steps with people from three months to 50 years, Paul, um, three a day, and uh, 18 one-hour meditations. I did a meditation before and after each fist step. And I walked out of that room changed. And I was so high. I was so awake. I was so open. I went home and did it with the five closest people in my life. It's been a powerful experience to hear fist steps. It's been a powerful experience to do fist steps. And the only way you get experience doing the fist step, listening and and uh, and doing your own, is to do it. Is to do it. We go on and read a few more instructions. I'll share a little bit of experience here. Those of us belonging to a religious denomination which requires confession must, and of course, will want to go to the properly appointed authority whose duty is to receive it. How many of you in here have done fifth steps with a, a man of the cloth? Okay. Then the rest of you have no experience with it. All you have is an opinion, right? Okay. Though we have no religious connection, we still do well to talk with someone ordained by an established religion. We often find such a person quick to see and understand our problem. Of course, we will sometimes encounter people who do not understand alcoholics. If we cannot or rather not do this, we need to search our acquaintance for a closed-mouth understanding friend. Book's trying to give you some ideas of what to look for, who to do this with. Perhaps our doctor or psychologist will be the person that may be one of our own family, but we can't disclose anything to our wiser parents which will hurt them and make them unhappy. We have no right to save our own skin at another person's expense. Such parts of our story we tell to someone who will understand yet be unaffected. The rule is, the rule is we must be hard on ourselves but always considerate of others. 
Bring that up in the meeting as a topic. He made an interesting point. Look next time you write inventory and do a fist step. Look at the number of judgments you have about things, people, ideas that you have no experience with. It's called prejudice. You have judgments about people who say they finished amends? Never have. You have judgments about somebody who says he did 14 fist steps. Well, that's a little compulsive. I, I think I, 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 never done that. You don't know. You don't know. You just don't know until you try. So what happens is and your ego makes the judgment on an opinion you never had. Shutting, what, shutting you off to an experience you'll never have. Bingo. Keeps you in this box of space and time. This year I had done something different. I, I, uh, um, really was spending a lot of time asking God to show me a lot more about 10 and 11. And in the process of that, four times this year, I picked up a pen. And I wrote some inventory after concerning one, two, three, and I did at least two or three fifth steps behind every piece. That's starting in January this year up till July. But the other thing that happened to me... The, is, the interesting thing that I'm interested in to hear his experience with is what this next inventory reflects and the amends that it reflects where he has not gone a year between doing one through nine, like I usually do. He did in there four spot check, because Bill mentions that in the 12 and 12, daily, uh, month, weekly or monthly, and then periodically. I'm interested to hear what that um, experiment uh, did um, in that year period. You see, and typically in the past what Joe and I have done is we'll go a period of time and then we'll go through the steps again. And uh, the idea came to me, and I said to him, you know, I, I'm real tired of doing this shit and having a lot of amends. <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try something different. And basically, a spot check inventory is a good way to do that. And so that's what I've done this year. And uh, Movement. The tension is good. He created a little tension in me, and I said, because they meet across the street from where I live, and I don't want them to move. <laughs> And my ego wasn't pulling shit like that 14 years ago. Right? But it is now. That's the shit that's going to kill me. Lady calls me from Buffalo. Lady I used to work with, I sent her a book by my, written by my spiritual advisor, James Finley. And uh, she reads it and she calls me about a couple months later and she says, that book is self-centered bullshit. And I spent 45 minutes on the phone with her defending his book. Check. Because Bill mentions that in the 12 and 12 daily. Uh, month, weekly or monthly and then periodically. I'm interested to hear what that um, experiment uh, did um, in that year period. You see, and typically in the past what Joe and I have done is we'll go a period of time and then we'll go through the steps again. And uh, the idea came to me and I said to him, you know, I, I'm real tired of doing this shit and having a lot of amends. <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try something different. And basically, a spot check inventory is a good way to do that. And so that's what I've done this year. And uh, when I get to amends off this uh, piece of work, we'll see what happens. But I started to tell you something. <clears throat> I had done one-fifth step uh, when I was about a year and a half sober with a minister. Really had no virtual, no memory of it. Um, but what happened to me is in December, uh, I got this idea I needed to go do confession. And... Uh, it would not leave my mind, so I decided I'd take action on that, and uh, I got directed to a man who was a um, a priest um, 
he had studied in Asia for a while, done a lot with meditation, so there were pieces of him I was comfortable with. Of course, and it was a confession, but it was a lot more than that because uh, I sat down with him and uh, he reviewed it for me uh, the preparation I had to do before I'd come and see him. Now, I didn't have an inventory there, but uh, he had me do some work with something he called the Sacrament of Penance. By God, it was an inventory, I'm here to tell you. And I had nine pages because I hadn't done confession since 1972. I said to him, the only thing I haven't done is murder somebody. And he, so he told, gave me all these instructions, and so I wrote all these instructions, and I sat down with him. Of course, I think he's going to go in this little booth, and that isn't true. He was closer to me than Joe, just eyeball to eyeball, said, let's go. And uh, so I wound up doing a, a, a fifth step with him is what happened, and he was able to let me see some things I've never been able to see before. And uh, that was a very powerful experience for me. So this year I've done, uh, off those four spot check, I've done the one, that was a major piece. We were two hours. Um, so I did that piece with him, and then I've done several fifth steps this year with different people. I fifth step with people that, I, uh, that I'm going through the work with. I have no problems. I'll fifth step with anybody that I sponsor because they understand what the hell I'm driving at. They understand it's life and death. They also know how to write inventory like we're showing you here. And I absolutely trust that when I sit down with them and we meditate and ask God to come in, God will use them to help me see truth because I, I can't always see the truth in there. My sponsor's first fifth step in the Colorado State Penitentiary, he went to a guy that he knew was going to help justify his inventory. And he sat there in this guy's cell, and he would read something, and the guy would say, well, that's not so bad. And he'd read something, and the guy would say, well, that's not so bad. And he had a spiritual awakening. He realized if he continued to believe that guy, he was going to die. And he left that guy's cell and went back to his cell and tore the inventory up because he had written it to justify it and, and impress this guy. And it hadn't worked, and he wrote another inventory and went to his sponsor. I don't need to sit there with somebody and say, oh, that's not, you know. It is. It is. It's killing me. It's the stuff that's going to kill me. And it's not the stuff from 14 years. Some of you, the stuff from 14 years ago is what's going to kill you. I'm free of that stuff. I'm current. So I think. Then I start the work. I move into inventory. And I'm writing about the last year that I thought I was so fucking awake. And I'm seeing... I'm wondering about when you're really awake in this in this on this path, because right? I see stuff in the years that I write about in 10, 11, and 12 that my ego can pull. I'm really glad I'm not operating in the world on a first step from 14 years ago. I'm also really glad I'm not operating in the world from one inventory 14 years ago, because if I had that as my point of reference, I would be telling you today I'm doing really really good. 14 years ago was my comparative. But my ego can pull some shit. For example, one of my last, not this last one, the one before fifth step, I'm reading to this man and I finish. And there's an important question here he's going to read in a minute about don't walk out of a fifth step withholding anything you're consciously aware of. You can't do anything about the stuff you're not consciously aware of, but don't ever leave a fifth step aware of anything you haven't shared in your consciousness or the fifth step promises won't happen, and you might as well not even go on. And uh, so he, we sat there, and I finished. He said, have you withheld anything? He left the room. I prayed for a few minutes. He came back in. He said, I said, yeah. I said, uh, I haven't been honest with my group about their He said, I'm sorry. I didn't really hear what you had to say. I said, well, I haven't been really honest with my home group about their 
He said, I'm sorry, I couldn't hear what you said. I said, I haven't been really honest with my home group about their rent. He said, oh, you've been taking money from your home group. I said, no, uh, I put in $50 extra a month because the church raised our rent from 150 to $200 a month, and I put in 50 bucks a month because I really care about the group. I don't tell anybody. He said, you big so-and-so. He said, tell the group the truth about their rent. And I made my amends to that group, and uh, they never had a problem with their rent since, and I've never had to put anything extra. He said, put what you want in their basket, but let them know the truth about their business. He said, why do you do that? I said, well, I, I'm a great guy. I care about the group. <laughs> he smelled more. He smelled a little more. Right? His nose was working. He said, well, why do you do that? I said, well, I'm, I'm the founder of that group, and I really care about that group, and I'm a great guy. He said, well, why do you do that? On and on and on. Finally, a little tension. The question creates the tension to cause movement. The tension is good. He created a little tension in me, and I said, because they meet across the street from where I live, and I don't want them to move. <laughs> and my ego wasn't pulling shit like that 14 years ago. But it is now. That's the shit that's going to kill me. Lady calls me from Buffalo. Lady I used to work with, I sent her a book by my, written by my spiritual advisor, James Finley. And uh, she reads it, and she calls me about a couple months later, and she says, that book is self-centered bullshit. And I spent 45 minutes on the phone with her defending his book. It's a proper thing to do when you're a disciple of a great teacher, right? right? And uh, I forgot all about it. Got to inventory. See, one, two, and three sometimes opens you up to stuff you don't even know is there. I have started, I can't tell you the number of times I've started the work telling my friends, I don't have that many resentments. I haven't harmed that many people in the last year. One, two, and three does magic to open you up to consciousness that's not you're not even awake to when you start step one. And I get to inventory, and, I, and there's that resentment. And I put her name in the first column, and that she said my spiritual advisor's book was bullshit. Looked at the third column. That was interesting. <coughs> Looked at the fourth column, and off the end of my pen came, I never read the book. I was defending a book on the phone for 45 minutes that I never had read. I had one. I had one. Uh, I got a call. He like myself. I got a call from a, a man I'd done some work with in Denver, and he called me. He was in New Orleans in terrible shape, suicidal, severe untreated alcoholism, and so I said, well, why don't you come up to Kerrville? So he came up to Kerrville and, and uh, stayed just a little too long. And uh, so I get to inventory and I write this inventory and I've got some stuff in the second column. You know, he owes me money and he doesn't respect me and he doesn't do whatever. And I do my third column, the friend, Mr. Friend and Mr. AA's third column. And I get to the fourth column. Now, keep in mind, this guy was suicidal when he called me. He was in terrible shape, right? And here's what comes off. I have two dogs and I travel a lot, right? What comes off my pen is the only reason I wanted him to come up was so that he could watch the dogs when I'm gone a lot. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you, I don't bullshit myself about what's going on within me, right? You see some stuff that's just incredible when you begin to work with this process. Top of 75. When we decide who's to hear our story, we waste no time. We have a written inventory and we're prepared for a long talk. 
Here's the most important question before a fifth step you should ask them to consider before you move on. Explain to the person you're about to read to what it is you're about to do and why you have to do it. That makes the inventory really interesting when you sit with that question before you read. See, we're on this path to do things mindful, to be awake to what we're doing. Don't go into a fifth step if you don't know what it is you're about to do and why you have to do it. This man should realize that you're engaged on a life and death errand. Now, wait a minute. That couldn't possibly mean. Most people approached in this way will be glad to help. They will be honored by your confidence. Those in the room that have heard fifth steps, when's the last time you told the person you were going to listen to that you were honored, that they would do something like that with somebody like you? that nobody ever trusted, and they're going to lay the whole life out to you. That's an honor. God's going to be there. You're going to invite God into that. To sit and admit to yourself, to another person, and God. The exact nature of your wrongs. Pocket your pride and go to it. Illuminating every twist of character, every dark cranny of the past. Stop. Draw a line. Don't go any further until you've read. Because the next line says, once you have taken this, I'm sorry, once you have taken this step, and you can't say that until you have. Withholding nothing. That has to be asked when you're done. Have I consciously withheld anything? Don't walk out of a fifth step with anything you've withheld. You might as well not even go on. Just go home, throw the damn inventory away, and just stop. If there's anything you've withheld when you walk out of that room. Now we're going to read the, the promises that come as a result of the action of this step. It says, we are delighted. We can look the world in the eye. We can be alone at perfect peace and ease. My God. Hmm. Our fear... fall from us, we begin to feel the nearness of our Creator. We may have had certain spiritual beliefs, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience. The feeling the drink problem has disappeared will often come strongly. We feel we're on the broad highway walking hand in hand with the Spirit of the Universe. Now, a couple times here, they say it here, I've just seen it for one of the first times, I'm sure I've seen it before. They're going to mention the problem with alcohol being removed. Here they say it's disappeared. In the 10-step promises, they're going to say um, the problem has been removed. Now, what about that in relationship to this analogy I was making, that you should bring the exact nature of the wrong that you're admitting back to alcohol? Well, here's the thing. We've seen some people in our group experience the problem with alcohol being removed. What they did was it. What they did with it was... They turned that consciousness, the position of neutrality, the problem with alcohol being removed into thinking that the truth about the problem has been removed. Now, just because the problem with booze has been removed doesn't mean your truth about that problem has been removed. Bring the exact nature of the wrongs that you are admitting or have just admitted and are going to begin to face in the sixth step the shortcomings and the defects directly back to the truth about alcohol. 
You might not be fighting it anymore. The problem might have been dis disappeared. But the truth about the problem, if that disappears, you end up going back through the work again, up against the wall, ready to drink, or you drink. The next time someone asks you to write an inventory other than the big book, just open your big book to these promises and say, let me ask you a question. If I use your inventory, will I get these promises? If you can find an inventory with better promises that will happen every time you do it, don't do this one anymore. But if their inventory doesn't have a set of promises that are as attractive to you as these, don't do theirs either. I have to find a better one. Returning home, we find a place where we can be quiet for an hour. This is not the sixth step. This is part of finishing five, returning home. Carefully reviewing what we have done. Look back through what you've done. We thank God from the bottom of our heart that we know him better. Question. How do you know God better after looking at yourself for five or six hours or however many hours? You know God better because you have discovered a lot of truth, and that is what God is. You have also, in the inventory, seen a lot about what God's not. And I'll tell you this. My path has been more about finding out about what God's not to get closer to what he is than playing the game of what he, trying to figure out what he is to end up finding it, all I discovered with what he isn't. Right? The, other, the other thing that happens in the fifth step is the same thing. You go into a you go into an inventory and into a fifth step with an idea, a complete delusion of who you are, and the fifth step shows you who you really are. Taking this book down from the shelf, we turn to the page which contains the twelve steps. You're getting just sentence by sentence we're getting direction here. Carefully reading the first five proposals, we ask if we have omitted anything. For we are building an arch through which we should walk a free man at last. Is our work solid so far? So you've got an hour. So what I like to do and what I have people do is I set a timer. By the way, it doesn't say 58 minutes. It don't say 62. It says an hour, right? There's spiritual virtue and following instructions. So I set a timer for one hour. And what I have them do with each question is ask the question and then sit in prayerful meditation with it for a few minutes in the course of the hour. Then it goes on to say, are the stones properly in place? Remember the stones we talked about? Ah, now if I've been thorough, I'm not confused, but imagine if a sponsor sent you home to read Returning Home, but they haven't been thorough up to that and you read that. Are the stones properly in place? What, what are they talking about? Well, they're talking about the cornerstone on 47 and the keystone on 62, your second and third step. Have you skimped on the cement? Page 17, equal parts, common problem, common solution. Have you tried to make one without the other? Are you trying to get fellowship without recovery? Are you trying to get recovery without fellowship? So they're asking you to review the cement, the stones, your first five steps, and see if you've omitted anything. I encourage people to do it more than once, because I usually return home and I'm, I'm dead. Right? I've just been to my funeral. We've just seen several pieces of me die. Right? The fifth step's like a funeral. 
And moving through this into six is like re being reborn. New person. At one. Those personalities have begun to die. And if they don't, I'll never finish amends. So I usually do it the next morning. And I usually do it again. And how do you know when you're done with returning home? Now the book makes a whole paradigm shift from you not being able to trust yourself. Your mind is what got you here. All this negative stuff, you're going to see a major shift between page 75 and page 76. Because now they're going to start to say, you may have had certain spiritual beliefs, but now you begin to have a spiritual experience and you're going to now start to trust God. Sure, you've trusted him with the writing. Sure, there's some kind of trust in taking the third step and really making that decision. And there's a little bit of trust to do the second step. And you're going to trust in the first step that God will reveal truth to you. But now I think there's a major shift, and they even say, how do you know when you're ready for step six? When you have answered to your own satisfaction. So do returning home as many times as necessary until you can meet the requirement at the top of the next page. When you have answered to your own satisfaction, look at step six. They've emphasized willingness as being indispensable. Yeah, 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 big deal. Why would that be important? That's what I say. Now the first question. Am I now ready to let God remove from me all the things I've admitted are objectionable? Yeah, sure. Sure I am. Can he now take them all, everyone? Never had a problem with that because of you people. I don't have any doubt that God can. So we add one in there from the ABCs after you look at can he. Now, take them all, every one. Ask this, will he? For me, as I am. With all this mud on my face, all this stuff that I've seen in this fourth and fifth step, will he take them all for me, for me, as I am, every one? That brings me to sort of a place where I'm beginning to feel it, the shift. Gosh, I don't know. Then the great question. Am I still clinging to anything that I'm not willing to let go? And he says, go back. Look through the inventory. Look through your life and write down any behavior, any beliefs, or any defects. I'll say it again. It could be behavior, specific behavior. It could be beliefs. It could be defects that you're still clinging to that you're not willing to let go. That's where you are with your next piece of work. And I wrote him down. And I thought he was going to say, well, now that you're clear on the things you're not willing to let go of, just ask God to help you be willing and move on because then you're, that means you're ready because the next thing says when ready. And he tricked me. He tricked me into making that list. I hate to even tell you what he did because you got to make the list first. He said, just sit with those things and each day admit that they're the things you're not willing to let go of. Locate yourself. Because you get out there after a fist step. you got the sixth step locates you back to where you are with anything you're not willing to give to God. And I had about five things on my list. And I thought he was going to say, now you're ready. Just go on. Do seven and just live with this stuff. He said, you're a big boy. You've been around long enough. That's a game you're playing. 
Sit with the stuff you're not willing to you're not willing to let go of. It made for a very interesting week. And once I saw there was some stuff, I then went back through the questions and I watched how they changed. We've em- emphasized willingness as being indispensable, and I saw how important that is, because that's all I was. Am I now ready to let God remove from me all the things I've admitted are objectionable? Nope. No, I'm not. And the day before, before he gave me this exercise, the answer was, sure I am. Till I was given the right question. Can he now take them all, everyone? I don't know. I don't know. Will he for me? I don't know. But I'm willing to believe that he will. And I saw what they meant by that trite statement that I didn't understand why willingness was so indispensable. Save me. That comes from him, too. A lot of alcoholics think they create their own willingness. Well, who shows up for this? Well, who's the one that's willing? Well, who takes the next breath? Well, who woke me up this morning? What doesn't God do? That's the question. And I'm going to hold some stuff back from the Creator. It made for a very interesting talk about the dark night. It was very helpful. Mark and I have noticed something, that there's usually several things you still want to hold on to when you do one fist step. But do seven or eight. Do 14. Do four. Every time I've ever done multiple fist steps, I get to this and there is nothing left of me that I want to hold on to. Don't judge that until you've done it. And then when I was ready to let it all go. And don't confuse willing to let go of to ready to stop doing. (laughs) Big difference. It doesn't mean the power is going to be there to stop doing the stuff on your list. It means willing. Let me get this straight. Willing to let go of could actually mean willing to let go of. Not figure out so you can stop doing it. Right? Not you're going to take the sixth step and then recreate yourself in your own image. Right? And then when we're ready, what do we do? Real, real quickly, this year, um, what I've been doing with the sixth step, uh, in the past I, I've worked with writing down my behaviors and the beliefs. Example, i got about three or four people right now doing this exercise in the sixth step. And I write down behaviors I'm, I'm taking as well as I'm not taking. Let me give you an example. What if you've been sober for a while and you're not doing prayer and meditation in the morning? You don't have a daily meditation life. That's the behavior. That's an action you're not taking. What's the belief system that would allow me to do that? I don't have to meditate to stay sober and have a deep experience with God. Your behavior is always determined by your belief systems. But I've done that, but this time I did something different. When I went down and did a confession with that priest and he had me work with the sacrament of penance, basically what they do is they take the seven deadly sins, which are mentioned in 12 by 12, and there's eight pages. They give it eight pages where they take the seven deadly sins like pride, and they open pride up to me in areas I'd never even touched before. Any of you have any sense of spiritual pride Take take a look at, the, at that layout. And so what I've done this year, the, the four times I've written inventory and done fifth steps, when I got to the sixth step, I took these eight pages, and they'll take pride, and they turn them into questions. Are you doing this? And they tell you what this is. 
And so I, as I went through it each time, I did two things. Are you doing this, Mark? Yes. You willing to let go? Are you doing this, Mark? Are you willing to let go? It was incredible. Never, never seen defects at a level like I saw the, the four times I've done this this year. And I get done with all that. And now I'm ready, and I say something like this, and Joe said something that's critically important. How many of you in here have done multiple fifth steps before? So very few of you. Then they'll know what I'm talking about. If you're in the room and you've never done multiple fifth steps, you can't even believe the levels of freedom that come when you do that. You can't even believe it. So when ready, I say something like this, my creator, I'm now willing you should have all of me, good and bad, and I pray that you now remove from me every single defective character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. Amen. And you do that amen and you realize that's the amen from the prayer that you started when you took the third step. And then you turned. Now, there's real power in that space. Our group uses that prayer at the end of the meeting, and I had to change a word. I had to add a word for myself, because I started to say it like this. My Creator, I'm now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defective character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. And it was about those people. And I had to start saying every single defect of my character, not defective characters. Now, they make an interesting statement about doing your bidding. His bidding, step eight, step nine, giving them the good and the bad. Now, that's interesting. And to be taken to a place past there where you no longer have judgment about what's good and bad, especially after you come out of a fist step. Because anybody in this room that's ever done a fist step, you've had to have had this experience where you went into the inventory with some stuff you thought was really good and was damn near killing you, and some stuff you thought was really bad, and it was what brought you back to God. And you start losing judgment about these things. And for a guy like me, no wonder I wasn't. You women should understand that men cannot be open to their emotions if they think certain ones are bad. Why would you be open to resentment or anger in a healthy way if you think it's bad? And for a guy like me with how I felt about my feelings, this man, this Native American man up on this cliff overlooking Pike's Peak, nine years sober, this Native American man that worked with me for two years, Don Coyas from Colorado Springs, Colorado, he asked me in the middle of the first three steps, and I've been a therapist, I've been in ten treatment centers, I got a master's degree in psychology, I've done the work eight or nine times. He says to me, just offhandedly, in the middle of the first three steps, how do you feel about your feelings? And I was stumped. I think what I said was, well, I feel good most of the time. That's all I could come up with. In the middle of that inventory, I saw how I felt about my feelings. I was filled with judgment about my own feelings. And I came to peace with some of the ones I thought were bad. That's why they say to constructively review your day at night in the evening review. 
How can you constructively review emotions you think are bad? That's destructive. That some of these emotions I thought were bad were the things that continued to bring me back to him. And I lost my judgment about good and bad. Then it starts to come back, and then I lose it. From time to time, I'm in this wonderful place where I don't even have judgment about myself. Sometimes I'm in this place where I don't have any judgment about you because there's no separate. I, I only see myself, not in a self-centered way. That's what compassion is. Compassion, true compassion, is when you come to lovingly accept that part of your being. It's never going to get it. And then you start to come to lovingly accept that part of other people's being. It's never going to get it. If I, if I don't know my own limitations, then I certainly cannot live with yours. How many of you know what the term guru means? Raise your hand if you know what it means. It means to Everyone that didn't raise their hand has a probably a negative conception of what that word means. It means to dispel darkness. And we make fun of it. We make fun of it. One who shines light on darkness. My most power, some of my most powerful gurus have been people that God put in my life and I wound up going through tremendous amounts of pain. He says, thank the last woman you were in a relationship with that caused you a tremendous amount of pain. She was probably your greatest teacher. And let me tell you my experience. The last woman I was married to, God used to let me experience dark night of the soul and without her, I would not have had what it, what I believe is is the most powerful experience I've had since I got sober. Jaime's wife comes to the meeting. They're both in our home group, and she says, this is Shelley. She says one night, I'm praying for my husband. Nobody thinks anything. Sounds pretty cool, right? She starts to share, and within her sharing, she says, because I'm on a plateau up here, and poor Jaime is down here. And all of a sudden, the hands go up. Right? That's when you're, when you're sharing in my home group and the hands go up and somebody said, is it possible, right? The question was, who's in a more fit spiritual condition? The one praying or the one being prayed for? And then she was asked another question. You ought to thank the person you're praying for because they're the one that brought you to your knees in the first place. Don't ever hate the people you're praying for. They are the vehicle that brought you to your knees. Don't ever, th don't ever hate the things you're praying for. Be careful what you pray for. Pray to experience silence. Talk a lot. Come to love solitude. All kinds of people. Pray for patience. You get Jason. Pray for tolerance, you get Sydney, right? Thank your teachers. Thank your teachers. Think about this. Is it possible that every prayer that, that you'll ever make will last longer than your time on the planet? Now, that's interesting. To read something that said, the next time you pray realize that the prayer is going to last longer than you are. Hmm. Now we need more action, without which we find that faith without works 
is dead. Remember the story? Just sit for six minutes, and if you don't become enlightened, take this dagger and stab it in your heart. Right? And he became, he became enlightened. Right? So let's look at steps eight and nine. We have a list of all persons we had harmed and to whom we are willing to make amends. We made it, this list, when we took inventory. We subjected ourselves to a drastic self-appraisal. Now we go out to our fellows. Now we go out to. We don't wait for them to come to us. Now we go out to our fellows, and we repair the damage done in the past. We attempt to sweep away the debris which has accumulated. Debris, huh? Like a tornado, huh? Out of our effort to live on self-will and run the show ourselves. We haven't the will to do this. We ask until it comes. Remember, remember, it was agreed at the beginning we would go to any links for victory over alcohol. Right back to the first consideration we started with on Friday night. Remember, it was agreed at the beginning. I wish we had several more hours with you. Um, there's an exercise in the book that asks you to look over your list. I usually have people make their list while we're reading the fifth step over here. and They can just easily write some names. But they need to continue to work on that list and work on the list so you know it's done. Now you have experience. You've worked with three other lists, resentment, fear, sex. By the eighth step, you're so tired of these damn lists and some idiot saying, you'll know when the list is done when you know the list is done, right? But you got to bet on that. you got to bet on that. God revealed to me the names that go on this list. Mark always says, how free do you want to be? I love when I sit in those meetings like last night and somebody shares the lengths that they've been given the power to go to. Well, I could no longer say after my first time through the steps, I could no longer buy. How about this one? I'm working the steps to the best of my ability. Once you get a clear first step, you see the best of your ability is to be on a fucking bar stool, unable to move, screwing everybody in your life over, and I'm going to work the steps to the best of my ability. I couldn't even get myself to the truth in the fourth column, 12 years in therapy to the best of my ability. I couldn't see the shit that was revealed to me in my first fourth column toward a man that I hated since my earliest memory, a father who was 57 years old when I was born. And by the time I was 10, he was 67 years old. That used to cause me great pain. It now gives me a lot of hope. Right? <laughs> and I can't get myself to the kind of truth that came out in that first fourth column. Because you know what I was shown? A 10-year-old kid that was playing God way before he ever took a drink. That 10-year-old kid knew how old that man should have been better than God. That 10-year-old kid knew what that man should have been doing better than God. That 10-year-old kid knew how that man should have been doing it better than God. And I saw a kid playing God way before he ever knew about booze. I saw the root of my disease two years before I ever took a drink, playing God. I know how the, cow, I know how the world should be. I know how he should have been. You always get the ones. I'm surprised it didn't come up yesterday. We always get it. How can a five-year-old kid see the fourth column from somebody that he was molested by? Now, my father didn't molest me, but it always comes up. He was terribly abusive, right, verbally. 
this guy could tear you apart, you know. You know, I've come a long way. You've got to always remember it's relative to where people come from. Don't compare where you've come from to where other people have come from. I've come a long way with my mouth. I, I can still do it. But I used to be unbelievable drinking. My friends used to say on a regular basis, I don't know how you didn't get killed tonight. Right? How do I get free? A five-year-old kid, you can't, a five-year-old kid can't see his part. But you know what I can see? What I did with it for the next 35 years. That was selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and based in fear and my inability to forgive that person that did whatever it was that was done to you. And I'll tell you when forgiveness is easy to begin to find. I'll tell you when forgiveness is, is, is easily given. When it's the very thing you start to seek. And when you start to want that kind of forgiveness from others, it'll be much easier to give when it's the very thing you're after. And that's just the way we are. You don't want forgiveness? You want justice? You want to get what you deserve and give what you deserve? Then you'll continue to get justice, but it won't be about mercy and grace. And you'll be dealing with a God, because you will form that God into your own image of yourself. You're dealing with justice and what friends deserve and enemies deserve and what you deserve. This room would be empty this weekend. None of us would be here. This is about grace and mercy and power. I finish that list and I go through a simple exercise. It's in the book. Look over the list. You might still feel some misgivings. So Don was told in the Colorado State Penitentiary, see, he couldn't get out. To go through that eight-step list and mark each one of them, plus or minus, willing to do or not willing to do, by closing your eyes, picturing that person, and asking, am I willing to do whatever this person might ask to make right the wrong? And be honest. If you're not willing, mark it. And I didn't feel so overwhelmed by that list. When I saw which ones I was willing to do and which ones I wasn't, and I said, Don, how will I ever get the willingness to do the ones I put a negative by? He said, by doing the ones you put a positive by. And I've never seen anybody's positive pile go down where some of the negatives weren't moved over. And I've never seen a positive pile be finished until the negative pile were turned into positive. I could never repeat that again, but maybe some of you understood that. And I fill out those cards, and I put their name, address, phone number, or the word find, if I don't have any of that pertinent information, in the left-hand corner. I put plus or minus in the right-hand corner. And on the rest of that card, and as many cards as I need to staple to that card, I write out all the harm that I'm clear on. And I don't mean I was selfish, self-seeking, dishonest, and afraid. I mean I lied to you about this. I stole this. I did this. I did this. I didn't do this. I wasn't there for this. And then you go to those people and you follow a simple, basic format. You think the instructions for inventory are hard to find without being there with somebody who's done that kind of an inventory. The instructions for amends are even harder to find, and this is the, this is the format we were given, whether it's in person, which is the general rule. I'll tell you which ones you should call and, and write letters to, the ones you harmed over the phone or harmed by writing a letter to. <laughs> I think the key word is direct amends. Direct amends. So the general rule is face-to-face. -face. The exception is a letter or a phone call or at a grave. The general format, no matter how you're going to do it, is to tell them why you're there, 
that it's very important for you to stay sober. They should understand. That's really good with ex-lovers, so they don't think you're there to get back together. The harm you're clear on, the most important one so far is, is there any other harm that I haven't mentioned that I ever caused you? My arrogance is I think I know the harm I've caused. The important question is, what have I done that's hurt you? Do you need to tell me how any of this has hurt you? And what can I do to make it right? And if financial, arrange the best deal you can. And you move into those amends. I start with the pile that I know where they are and I'm willing to do. I've got other piles. Out of state, willing, out of state, not willing. Need to find willing, need to find not willing. And I'll be damned if I'll ever listen to anybody I ever work with in the future who'll say, I can't go to Des Moines, Iowa to make those amends. It's too far because I'll tell them a story about J.P. J.P.'s a little guy who was, um, uh, he has French parents. He was raised in England in boarding schools. And he lived, grew up in Hong Kong. He lived in England, France, and Asia. Came to America, got sober. He had a huge inventory, and it wasn't bullshit. We got to amends. He had 350 in continents. We put his pile, his piles were North America, South America, England, France, and Asia, and this kid made 350 amends in two years, and the week he finished his last amends, his father died. He inherited $20 million cash in a multi-million dollar corporation that he runs to this day that he could not have run one month earlier. Amazing things start to happen. We could have done the whole weekend on step nine and the things that start to happen in your life. I got to go to my father's grave when three-fourths of that room of Alcoholics Anonymous, every time you ever want to get free, says, can't do that, can't make amends to somebody who's dead. All they're doing is expressing their agnosticism. And all they're saying is God isn't everything. He can go here, he can go here, he can go here, but he can't go over here. And thank God the other fourth of the room, and I'm probably giving you a break, thank God the other fourth of the room said, sure you can. We know your sponsor. Do what he says when you get to step nine. Don't worry about it. Now, you don't have the power in an inventory to make those amends. Don't think about nine when you're in four. You're not even going to be the same person when you're done with eight as you are in four. Don't think about inventory when you're in one. There is a miracle at each step, but the miracle of each step is when you're in the action of the next. You want to know when you've done four? When you're sitting in somebody's living room doing five. You want to know when six and seven are done? When you're not thinking you can fix any of that stuff and you're making an eight-step list because you've given six and seven to God. You want to know when you've done eight? When you're making amends. The exact moment you're willing, you'll hear a really strange noise. Right? Remember? The exact moment you're willing to make that amends, you'll hear really strange noises and you'll hear things coming out of your mouth like, I need to talk to you about the harm I caused you. Mark was at a meeting one time. A man said, to think that you could finish every amends that you've ever, every harm you've ever caused, every amends you're aware of, is like thinking you could take a feather pillow and throw it off the top of the Empire State Building and go find every one of those feathers. And Mark said to the man, what if you had a direct relationship with that which created each of those feathers? Could he take you back to each of them? And amazing things start to happen in amends. Uh, I probably hear more bullshit 
around the ninth step than any other step, and the reason I hear more bullshit is because people are giving me opinions on experiences they never had. The book is real, real clear. There's six, seven pages here on every kind of amend you have to make. Someone came up to me and said, well, what about money? Well, there's a paragraph in here. It's real, real clear about money. My experience is if I owed them money, they wanted it back. It was their money. So I had to make an approach and make the best deal I can pay it back. But it covers all kinds of amends. The man or woman you hate, relationships, money, you name it, they're all in.